said, well, your dad's in the hospital. And I said, uh, okay, what happened? And, you know, she started whispering in, in her own house when nobody else was there. She said, he has alcoholism. And I'm like, why is she whispering? That's so weird, you know. But at that time, it was 1981. And in 1981, it was super not cool to be an alcoholic, especially in the music industry. I mean, today I always joke, you can go into rehab and come out with a record deal these days in the, yeah. in the music industry. But back <laughs> back in those days, you were blackballed, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was a really rough time. And that one little word changed my whole life. But at the time, I didn't know what that really meant. Welcome to Unscripted Pivots, the podcast where we explore life's unexpected turns and the incredible journeys they can lead us on. Today, we're diving into a deep topic that often requires one of the most profound pivots of all. Today, we're going to talk about addiction. My guest today is an expert in personal development and trauma recovery, and she is here to uncover the unscripted stories of those who have triumphed over addiction and reshaped their lives. It is both an honor and a privilege to welcome Quincy Worf. Quincy is founder of Quincy Worf Consulting and is a true luminary in the realm of personal development and empowerment. She has dedicated literally her life to helping other individuals not only overcome adversity, but thrive in its aftermath. As an internationally acclaimed speaker, workshop leader, and personal development coach, Quincy has inspired countless souls to rise above their challenges and unlock their full potential. Her wisdom and expertise extend across a wide range of crucial topics, making her a beacon of hope for those seeking transformation in their lives. Welcome, Quincy. I am truly excited to have you here today. Thank you, Danielle. I'm super excited to be here as well. So I I just love to talk about people who are seeking to become a better version of themselves, right? There's so much struggle out there. And I mean, the list goes so long, right? But when we talk about addiction and recovery, it's not just over one particular thing, right? Often our minds can go there. I want to talk to you about like, how did you get into this? Like, I know it was early on. And I mean, did you come out of the womb knowing this was your life's work? Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay. So let's chat about it. (laughs) Actually, I came out of the womb. I grew up in a, in a, how do I want to say this? A Hollywood legacy family. My grandfather was an actor and a director and a writer and a producer in Hollywood, did lots of movies, did lots wow. of stage. And so, and my dad was, um, he designed album covers for some of the biggest bands in the world. And, and, uh, and I just came from a super creative family and I came out and fell in love with dance. And I was obsessed with being um, a prima ballerina at a very early age and um and put my whole life into it. I mean, I came out of the womb obsessive, right? Like it was easy for me to get addicted to dance from the very beginning, right? So that was probably my first real addiction was dance and and I loved it. I loved everything about it. And um and it was my it was the love of my life. Like it was the thing that I couldn't wait to do. My whole life was built around it. It was what I saw the whole trajectory of my life. And I believe that that's what I was meant to do. I was born into this family. They're all creative. This is my contribution. This is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I definitely see some genetic predisposition to being like an entertainer of sorts, right? That's Mm -hmm. pretty fascinating. And then you are a native California girl, right? I am. There's not a lot of us left, but I am born and raised in California. I I know. I I don't claim to be. I wish I was. But no, no, I don't. I like (laughs) the East Coast. 
So you're yeah. doing the dance and you're growing up. And then, I mean, was this something that you pursued into like higher levels of education? Were you dancing when you were in high school and college or? I was dancing in high school, but what happened for me is here's my, probably my first pivot was my father, who was an alcoholic, um, started to get sick from his alcoholism. Mm. And that changed my entire life. Like all of a sudden the focus went from us being this, you know, normal family, happy-go-lucky family. So I thought that was having this wonderful life to, oh my God, we have to get dad sober. And my mom's became myopically focused on my father and getting him sober. And all of a sudden, like the three of us didn't really register anymore. And as a result, you know, I was angry. I was confused. I was toxically insecure before this. I had all these feelings and all these things going on that I didn't understand. And I actually found alcohol and, uh, and it changed my life and it changed how I wanted to pursue my life. All of a sudden dance was not nearly as interesting or as exciting as it once was this whole new life that I was getting into about drinking. And, you know, I had older friends and, um, they would all go Mm -hmm. to the dance clubs in, Los Angeles. And at the time, there was a lot of under 21 dance clubs, or there were 21 and over dance clubs that were super easy to get into. How old were you? Just so we can get a feel, because you're obviously underage, you're getting into these clubs. Mm -hmm. Are you 15? Are you 17? How old are you? Probably 14. Probably, it probably started when I was 14. So, I mean, what a pivotal time it is in a young woman's life Mm -hmm. at 14. I mean, that is such a transformative time. Even if your world hadn't been turned upside down, the awakening of your own spirit and identity, even outside your family, starts to come into play at about age 14. And there's a lot of like, you know, life changes that happen that, you know, we enter womanhood. So these things are going on organically because, you know, the calendar is going to say, yeah, it's time for her to become a woman and, you know, find her own way. And you have nothing around you that looks familiar, okay, or safe, right? Yes. So correct. all the things that your energy was directed towards, which was like the creative side and the dancing side, and I'm sure that you were probably a pretty decent student until you discovered that you didn't want to feel what you were feeling anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know how to change how I felt. You know, my parents were in their own whirlwind at the time. They didn't know how to change how they felt either. And, you know, I, I it's interesting because, you know, alcoholism has a lot of controversy topics to it, whether, you know, it's genetic, whether it's behavioral, whether it's learned, whether it's this, that, and the other. And growing up in an alcoholic family didn't you know, made it easy for me to go to that as a solution because it was what I saw in my house for sure. And I don't know if they would have taught me how to how to deal with my feelings any differently than I did if I would have avoided yeah. being an alcoholic, right? But I didn't grow up in a family that talked about how you felt you weren't allowed to have feelings. They were extremely sarcastic and very witty. They were super educated, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and so you know, not knowing how to deal with these feelings, my only solution at that point was, well, I don't want to feel at all. (laughs) Let's just go there. I'd like to feel nothing. And that would be preferable. Yeah. So let's get some color on your life. Uh, Were you one of a bunch of children? Are you an only child? Or who, who at your level is also witnessing this? I'm the oldest of three children. My sister is 15 months younger than me. And then my brother was five and a half years younger than me. So this happened when he was really young and it's not something that he remembers a lot of. 
And it's interesting because my sister and I talk about it every once in a while, and we have very different views on how things happened. <laughs> why? Why? Of is course, it that as way? every all children, <laughs> I I don't know, but as all children do, right? Um, <laughs> but it's interesting because I was like I always saw myself as my dad's kid, right? Because he was the love of my life and the you know the person I wanted to spend all my time with, and and who I just idolized and was obsessed with. And my sister and my brother were closer to my mom as kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and when he, when this all started to happen for him, all of a sudden I wasn't the focus in his life anymore. I wasn't the focus in anybody's life and, you know, not knowing how to adapt to that <laughs> was, mm-hmm. was, you know, traumatic for me in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, and, and created this, this need of needing to be recognized from that point forward. So it was, um, you know, it, it was just an interesting kind of dynamic in our house. And uh, it really, honestly, the perfect storm. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm, your, your brother totally. too young to really understand and acknowledge, but you definitely old enough to witness that you were, you know, to some degree being alienated. Right. And whenever we yes. have those, those gaps or the disconnection with anybody, that's mm-hmm. where these things, um, this need for comfort right? And self-soothing come into play. And it's so easy to slip into using outside substances, especially at that age where people are typically getting involved or introduced to those things, even if it's just in a recreational manner, right? But for somebody who has the addictive tendencies, this can lead um, to a very dark, serious path very quickly because physiologically, they're wired different. I want to know a little bit about your dad so I can understand why you would go down a path he was just working hard to recover from. So how interesting is that? Okay. What catapulted you into becoming sick? He is simultaneously trying to get well. Was he successful in getting sober? No. Uh, Did it ever Mm -hmm. last? Just, you know, just, just quickly tell us about that so that I can understand what it was that you thought would work or not work. Well, it's interesting. It's, you know, I can remember the day I came home from school to find out that my father had a grand mal seizure and I had, I had gone to a girlfriend's house and I called to check in and, um, Mm. and I I called my mom and I said, I said, yeah, I'm at so-and-so's house. And she said, okay. I said, you know, what's going on or whatever. And she said, well, your dad's in the hospital. And I said, "Uh, okay, what happened? And, you know, she started whispering in, in her own house when nobody else was there. She said, he has alcoholism. And I'm like, mm. why is she whispering? That's so weird, you know. But at that time, it was 1981, right? And in 1981, it was super not cool to be an alcoholic, especially in the music industry. I mean, today I always joke, you you can go into rehab and come out with a record deal these days in the, yeah. in the music industry. But back <laughs> back in those days, right? you were yeah. blackballed, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and it was a really rough time. And, and that one little word changed my whole life. But at the time, I didn't know what that really meant, you know. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I actually ended, she ended up, you know, chasing him in and out of rehab. He went to St. John's, he went to a couple different places. And, um, you know, my dad was, you know, he was, I mean, he'd been an alcoholic for a really long time at that point. He was in Mm -hmm. his early, I would say his early fifties, right. When this all started to happen. 
And, um, and he didn't really believe that alcohol was the problem. He was convinced that my mother was the problem, right? As any, <laughs> any good alcoholic is. Yeah. It's a, well, you know, any problem, whether it's alcoholism or any other kind of problem, we're also, you know, we're, we're too quick to look at like our outside circumstances, which include people, places, and things, and, you know, point the finger uh, instead of looking within. 100%. Thin. Hello, my WTF friends. I've got a quick, empowering question for you. Ever find yourself wondering if you're truly leveraging the full scope of your abilities in your professional life? I'm Danielle Sprouls, your ally in navigating the unique challenges many women face, from mastering public speaking to personal branding and navigating the complex terrain of gender inequity in corporate culture. At Unscripted Pivots, we transform your ambitions into reality through personalized coaching, accountability, and innovative problem solving. I'm here to catapult your career and help you make a significant mark in your industry. Ready to ascend to greater heights in your career? Well, visit unscriptedpivots.com and let's start a conversation that celebrates and elevates your ambition. So, okay. So the reason I asked you about your dad's journey was because I wanted to understand as you picked up the bottle while he was trying to put it down, if you were at least encouraged or started to hide, but it was just a bit of a hot mess, it seems. And so- Yeah. It wasn't like anybody said, okay, this is what alcoholism is. This is, you know, it has to do with, we didn't talk about that stuff back then. Like they didn't talk about drug addiction. They didn't talk about suicide that often. They didn't talk about, I mean, I don't remember once being in school and then talking about you know, teenage drinking or teenage drug use. I don't remember no. any of that. Like, I don't think no, any of that. No, happened. maybe you were going to get get your hand slapped because, you know, you did something around that or, or snuck it into school, but there was never the larger conversation as to how transformative it can be once it's abused, right? So today it's Correct. on the forefront, I think, because, you know, there's, we can go into shame and denial and all the things that are surrounded with, you know, recovery and any kind of addiction, but, but let's just get there for a minute. So you're in the clubs, right? And you're hanging out with some kids that are older than you, right? And, 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 you know, you're sowing your oats. And so what did that look like? How well was that going until it didn't? Because this leads you into your life's work. It's interesting because like I, I started hanging out in the clubs. Like I would, I was living a double life. Like I would come home and act from school and act like I was normal, do my homework, you know, eat dinner with my family and then go to bed super early and Mm -hmm. wait for my family to go to bed. And then I would slip out my window and take a cab from Encino (laughs) to Hollywood or Encino (laughs) to Sherman, Santa Monica, or, you know, Encino to wherever to go dancing, you know, at 13 and 14 years old um, and hang out all night with my friends and dance and drink and make out with boys. And you know what I mean? Do all that stuff. Every um, parent's nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Every parent's nightmare, you know? And, uh, but I was, I mean, I was a dancer. So for me, it was like, this was a way I got to do both at the same time. And, and, uh, and it was just so much, and it was, it was so much fun. I was having the time of my life, but it got pretty, pretty ugly, pretty quick because I mean, I I joke about this all the time. I say, you know, there's no such thing as social drinking at 13. Like that's not a thing. (laughs) No, (laughs) That's not a thing. Like we're, we're drinking for the effect from the get. And, uh, and I was the kind of person who loved, you know, the more you drink, the more the effect. Right. And, uh, and I loved that. 
about alcohol and drugs. So how old were you and what, what's, yeah, what started to happen and how old were you when you thought, okay, I'm going to address this or did somebody else bring it to your attention? Well, because my dad was trying to get sober, he was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. My mother was introduced mm-hmm. to Al-Anon. And uh, when the Al-Anons got a hold of her, they said, you know, we, uh, we have a program for kids as well to learn about alcoholism. And I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous and um, through Alateen, and, which was an amazing thing because it was, it was the only place it was being talked about. It was the only place I was going to learn anything. And I remember... I just, I didn't want anything to do with it, but I ended up going because there were hot boys there. And, um, but we Mm -hmm. would sit and we would talk about what it meant to live in an alcoholic home. And it was the only support I was getting at the time. But because I had been around the rooms and I had heard stories about what people were going through or the consequences that happened in their life as a direct result of their alcoholism, I started to relate because some of the consequences that were happening for me, I was hearing in older people. And so I knew that I had a problem with something, but I didn't necessarily understand the full ramifications of it. I thought that if I, you know, could just get rid of the drugs and the alcohol, like it would be that simple, that everything would be fine. And um, Mm -hmm. that wasn't the case. Yeah, that's a common misconception. That's 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 a common belief. People think this all day long um, until they're brought to their knees. And so it's... um, and it's not uncommon that people come in through like the back door instead of the front door. You know, they're they're there to work on or learn about, you know, somebody else's issue, you know, typically a loved one, whether it be a parent or a husband or, you know, whatnot. And then they see that they too have the same characteristics, right? Because, you know, yes. there is a thing, such a thing as being able to thrive in other areas of your life and still have this disease have a hold on you, right? Mm -hmm. And it is so difficult to accept unless you've lost a series of things and you have concrete evidence that, you know, you are in a place of like no return, really, right? So, you know, move forward or go under. And okay, so you're, you're learning more about the disease of alcoholism and you started to identify with it. And so with that, you just began to turn your life around? Is that kind of what happened? Yeah, I, you know, there were a couple of super humiliating situations. I started waking up in strange places with strange people at 15 years old, you know, Mm -hmm. naked, almost always. And that was never, you know, at 15, that's a scary thing. And usually I'd wake up at somebody's house, but I was sexually assaulted a bunch of times, you know, and and believed on some level that, Mm. but believed on some level I deserved it because I was drunk and you know, I wasn't able to, to, to defend myself. So it was, you know, I just thought it was kind of par for the game, you know? And so that was hard. Mm, I, I, you know, I want to take a minute because, you know, there can be listeners out here that can be um, somewhat shocked by the statement that you were 15 and these things were happening and maybe they don't personally identify because they've never experienced it. But I challenge anybody who would be shocked by that statement to think if they have not done the same thing, maybe in their 20s while they were in college, their 30s, their 40s admits divorce, co-workers, this and that. I can think of a slew of times where people have mm-hmm. done the same thing. Maybe you weren't 15, but I want you to dig deep and say, how many times did you find yourself in a place that you had no intention of being in 
as a result of, you know, abusing drinking. And it doesn't mean that you have to have the actual disease of alcoholism, but I witness this all too often. I am in a, uh, you know, a commercial real estate job and I am surrounded by, you know, the cocktails mm-hmm. and, you know, the parties and alcohol itself. Just, you know, that, that really is like the selling factor of every event. I don't know how many uh, sober events or a- you know, non-drinking events anywhere are actually- yeah, and 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 I witness it on the regular, and it, it is kind of sad, right? Because it's embarrassing. We're not saying that drinking is not fun. Yeah, it can be really fun, and for a quote unquote normal drinker, somebody who doesn't have an issue, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I see, and this right. this unscripted pivots is basically addressing a female audience. But and I see so many women, and I feel their pain in like how they're using it as a coping mechanism, whether it's because mm-hmm. the kids are young and they are just so stressed out or they're trying to balance, you know, the, the job and the career or deal with the husband or deal with the divorce or God forbid, deal with the, you know, the cancer diagnosis. And so we do this to comfort ourselves and self-soothe. And that considered, you know, pretty normal, right? And okay. But it's, it's amazing to me how nobody wants to look at when use becomes abuse and abuse slides into addiction and alcoholism mm-hmm. is a progressive disease. So I also witness so many people struggling with, well, I used to be able to just have a couple glasses of wine. <laughs> I used to be able to go out and like then go home and go to sleep. And I can't do that. And then struggle and strive to return to the place where they used to. And then in comes yeah. the blame of, well, I'm just older. Oh, it's hormones. No, I encourage anybody listening that if you think that you might have a problem, do a deeper dive into it because it's nothing that anybody can run from and it will eventually kick your ass. So <laughs> you end up getting well. And then let's let's catapult into how you then became a personal development coach around this, you are out there supporting, you know, just trauma, all right? So it's not even just Mm -hmm. about addiction, but trauma, adults, teenagers, and in your life's work, you are out there helping and changing and transforming. I mean, Quincy, you know, hail to the queen. I mean, that is big, (laughs) beautiful work and not easy Mm -hmm. because a lot of times, I imagine you're encountering a lot of brokenness. And when we start with that, you know, not so easy. It's not like you're talking to the eager entrepreneur with their hand up in the, you know, first row. Oh, help me. Teach me about this new strategy. Oh, I want to know. Oh, you know, with the notepad, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of despair. So your clients are coming to you as a major project, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, my my the love of my work is is working with teenagers because I believe mm-hmm. that um, they're the most unheard, right? In a lot of okay. ways, um, and, yeah. and they need to be heard the most. That was my experience, anyway. If I if I would have had somewhere to go, and I I was lucky, like I got to go to Alatina and be a little heard, but that's not a formal environment. That's not a, mm-hmm. it wasn't the kind of environment I'm talking about, but I love working with the teenagers because I relate to them the most in a lot of ways. Like I was there, I've been one of them. I've been recovering from being one of them my whole life. Right. And so, yeah. you know, 
over over the years, like so the first time I got sober, I was 15 and a half, but I didn't stay sober. I went back out and it got worse as it does. And I got sober again at 18 years old. And so I've been sober since the beginning of time. And I've done so much work on myself because of all of mine on my unscripted pivots, right? Things that I didn't sure. plan for, whether it was, you know, career changes or husband changes or, you know, children, you know, I'm not somebody who likes to feel pain. So I will do whatever it takes to recover from whatever pain's coming to me. And as a result sure. of doing that work, I've attracted a lot of people to me who want to do the work as well. And, um, and I developed this skill over the years over how to help people see their own trauma. And, you know, this is where I get a little controversial in the sense that my my vision about trauma is I don't believe any of us are broken. Like I just, I hate hearing when people say, oh, I was so broken. I don't know that we're broken as much. It's just a word that is so negative to me as much as it is, is I have so many different things that are going to form me into the person I'm meant to be. Like I think in this country, especially we have a way of looking at trauma as a super negative thing. And there, there are, yes, trauma is gnarly and it changes you. I mean, the definition of trauma is, you know, an event that happens that psychologically changes you through pain. Right. Mm. But that can thing as well. I mean, think about it. Like if, you know, you win the lottery and you just, you know what I mean? You just won the $2 billion lottery. <laughs> I hope I get traumatized in that, in that way. That would be lovely. Yeah. It does change your whole life. You know, it changes who you are as a person. It changes the way you see things. It changes who comes into your life, who leaves you. Because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a major shift that happens, whether it's a good one or a bad one. We get to decide what we get to do with it. Mm. No, this reminds me of a quote um, when I was, you know, thinking about speaking to you, and and it goes, "Your present circumstances don't determine where you can go; they merely determine where you start." Mm-hmm. And that's and that's tr- what trauma is too. Like I yes, believe right? that we are all born perfect, and that mm-hmm. that the number one thing that that humans are supposed to do on this planet is connect to other other humans and we are given a mission when we get here and that mission shows up in the form of trauma because in that Mm. trauma that leads us on a path to connect to the people we're supposed to connect to i mean if we're born perfect and we have no, no nothing that changes us then what do we need each other for right and i've been led as a result of the trauma in my life to deal with and help the people in my that, that have come to me as a, I mean, I would never try to help somebody with, oh, I don't even know. <laughs> I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but like, you know, accounting, like, you know, I don't okay, have, yeah, accounting. You know, I don't have account of trauma, you know, but I have other traumas. And so those are the kinds of things that, that people come and say, you know, help me with this. And there's a gift mm. in all of it. There's a gift. It, it, it makes us a different person. It changes us and it gives us something that we couldn't have gotten in another way. And I think that changing the way that people look at trauma or, you know, why trauma shows up in our life is, yeah. is important to get people to want to work for, with it. Right. Cause people hear trauma and it's terrifying. It's like, Oh my God, I don't want to deal with all that pain. Well, no, because the word itself just encapsulates the idea that you're going to be uncomfortable Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe there, is there maybe there's got to be a new word for that, too. I'm not sure. Yeah. But what if what if under all that trauma is the most beautiful sculpture ever? Like, that's what trauma is to me. Trauma is the knife that peels away, you know, the things in you that you don't 
need, you know, and forms mm-hmm. them into something bigger and better if you want them to. I mean, you can hide behind trauma and use it as an excuse for your entire life if you want to. And a lot of people do. But yeah. where is that getting anybody, you know? Well, yeah. And that reminds me of the other quote that, you know, recovery is not for people who need it. It is for people who want it. Yes. Right? And and you're going to have to you're going to have to want what is essentially the unknown future. You know, we can all be told that like, you know, this is what waits, you know, on the other side you're talking about what's underneath and the beautiful sculpture that that exists, but it's not something that we historically have any experience with personally, right? Like to to face those things. Um and then to get mm-hmm. the support around it. Right? Yeah. There there's so much out there about, you know, stigma and denial and you know it i i celebrate that a lot of you know mental health awareness and support has really grown mm-hmm. over the last several years and it continues to yes. be in the forefront and i can't help but to think that one of the catalysts to that is like women you know mothers in particular you know coming out of of you know the darkness of I don't want to hide behind this anymore. I have a child who I think may die from this. I have a husband who, you know, to everybody mm-hmm. else's um, experience, they a big CEO sitting in the C-suite and, you know, he's so famous and he's so rich and blah, blah, blah. And you have no idea what we're living with behind the home door, right? There's mm-hmm. so much of that. And so I think that women generally have been a catalyst um, to, you know, making sure that we're checking in. 100%. Yeah. And so, you know, yay, go, go females, right? I, I swear we are the, the leaders in, in, in real change. Women have been, you know, have, yes, stopped being quiet about stuff and have started mm-hmm. to normalize conversations that were, yeah. you know, not topics that were talked about in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, yeah. even in the 80s. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, just you could just talk about postpartum depression. Like that was never talked about, you know? Yeah. All the things that we never never talked about, you know, that are now, and you know, that's why, you know, normalizing that things are normalizing that the word normal isn't, isn't correct. Okay. This has to be, everything has to be redefined. I mean, I, you know, it's terrific that today, you know, we we can be, have a sexual orientation that we don't have to hide. I'm not saying that everybody can be as public about their choices, but it's pretty mainstream. Who gets shocked now when you learn that? I mean, there's like nothing about that, right? So, and that's great, but that wasn't what it was 20 or 30 years ago. And, um, you know, postpartum depression, like how could you not be happy? You were just gifted a baby. You're blessed, right? We have to talk about the, you know, and we have, what I love to even just discuss about this, any kind of obsession. I I know people, you know, women who I used to envy because I'm like, look at their fabulous bodies. Well, guess what? You know what? They have an exercise addiction or they have Mm -hmm. an eating disorder. Not everybody. I'm just saying I have come to learn because I don't have those things. I always wanted an exercise addiction. I don't have it. And and I used to go, oh yeah, I go, look at them. And then you find out that there is so much more underneath and it's really destructive behavior that they are in pain about. Sure, they're a size zero, but they're deeply unhappy. So Mm -hmm. what I like to bring to the forefront in this conversation, and the reason I even wanted to do this episode was I wanted to say, let's stop being embarrassed. Let's start looking in and educating ourselves. I wanted this to be a launching place where it might encourage Mm -hmm. somebody to do a deeper dive into becoming educated about what this looks like, right? What addictive behavior can be. Yeah. Well, and what pain can be. I mean, you know, part of my 
my mission is, you know, I go and I speak in high schools to kids because I want them to nor- to normalize how they feel and how they think. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought that I was the only one who was toxically insecure. I thought I was the only one who was obsessed with how people thought of me. I thought I was the only one who had all these feelings and all these thoughts, but I wasn't. Sure. And it wasn't until years later that I found out. And it's like, if these kids could learn how to talk about that stuff, they can learn how to deal with it differently. Then they don't have to go to drugs and alcohol to make themselves feel better. But we're still not dealing with the problem in schools. We're still dealing with, you know, the defective solution, which is going to drugs and alcohol. And they're just trying to scare kids to death. And it's scary, but let's deal with Mm -hmm. the real problem. And, you know, pain is, pain is just the beginning of the journey, right? If I'm having pain about something, it means I have something I need to look at in me. That's all that pain is. And if I would have been given that simple of a definition when I was a kid, you know, I don't know what I would have done with it, but it would have started a conversation. It would have given me a way to look at things in mm-hmm. a different way than what I, what I was doing, you know? Well, I love, I love that you're doing that, you know, with the teenagers, because, you know, if we're only looking at the behavior and not the actual mm-hmm. problem, we're missing the point. Yes. And the problem will never go away. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, maybe for some, but for a lot of people, it won't. And just Mm -hmm. to have that larger conversation around that. What is the most joyful thing that you experience in your work? Like, what is the most rewarding part of all of this? Watching somebody have a serious shift right? About Mm. something where they've been so trapped by a belief system or by an event or, you know, seeing it one way and they can't see it any other way. And then over time doing the work with them and getting them to a different place where their perception changes and all of a sudden they're Mm. free of it, never to return to it again. Right. And, and I think that that's probably the biggest joy part of it. Yeah, sure. I love when I speak and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, my God, I heard, you know, I heard everything I needed to hear, which is always good, too, because it means I'm on the right track. Right. But I think that, you know, on the one to one basis, watching somebody literally get free of the, the ties that are binding them is magical, you know, gives me goosebumps talking about it. So. That, yeah, that, that must be so rewarding. I can feel mm-hmm. it. I can feel the, you know, <laughs> the validation and the love that comes from that. And then let mm-hmm. me ask you on the flip side, not to burst this bubble, but what is it like when you've worked with a client for some time and they're unable to, or they choose not to get past their trauma? Um, there's a lot of those people and it is frustrating. Yeah. Um, but I know from my own work that you know, we're kind of, people's brains and their belief systems and everything that's going on in here is kind Mm -hmm. of like a lock that has a thousand clicks in it, right? And every time somebody has a conversation or learns something different or, you know, sees something that affects them, one of those clicks gets clicked, you know? And so I don't, I have to remember that when I'm talking to somebody, it's not, I'm not responsible for what they get out of it. I'm just responsible for presenting the information and hoping that they hear it. Right. But how they, what they do with it, I have no idea. I mean, I, I think about all the people that came into my life that would say things to me or would help me with things. And it wasn't until years and years and years later Mm -hmm. that I finally got totally opened up on it, but it took a series of clicks to get there that don't happen all at one moment, you know? And so I think that, that even fighting letting go of trauma or wanting to hold on to it. It's a protection, right? It's how we, how that person's usually protecting themselves. 
and eventually it stops working, you know, and, yeah. and it, it's no different than alcoholism or food, you know, addiction or even an exercise addiction, right? I knew somebody yeah. who was addicted to drinking water at one point. Eventually it stops working and they get into enough pain. It stops working. You know, we used to, I mean, I know people, and, and I'm not saying I probably went through a phase like this for a little bit, uh, you know, work addiction, you know, and we mm-hmm. used to be, you know, used to hear, oh, addicted to work or, or whatever, or workaholic. Oh, you know, oh, so-and-so can't be around on Friday. They're a workaholic. And, and you know, out come the hands. We're going to clap their dedication and their service. And the true matter mm-hmm. is, okay, again, not everybody that, you know, works hard is is a workaholic, but there people slip into these obsessions. And I think that the message today, too, is that when you want to take a hard look at how you're prioritizing things. And if there is this one thing that you almost feel like you can't uh, stop or you begin renegotiating with yourself the boundaries that you put into place. So for instance, you say, well, I'm going to put the family first or I'm going to go to my son's uh, basketball game or you know whatever it is. And then you don't. Look at what's coming between you and the thing that you wanted to do that you had promised you would do. Because when we keep pushing that envelope further and further and we start to renegotiate with ourselves, that kind of behavior leads to you know lowering your self-esteem, self-disgust really. And then you start to isolate because you don't even want to admit it. You don't want to admit mm-hmm. it to somebody else. You don't want to admit it to yourself. And that's where Quincy comes in because she's able to take, you know, an experienced deep dive into how you can transform, how you can recover and, you know, do it in a loving, safe manner. So this is, I, I just, I love that you're doing this kind of work. I, I feel, Thank you. oh my gosh, I sell title insurance for a living. Like I'm like, wah, wah, wah. No, not that. Look, I love commercial real estate, but I mean, Quincy, <laughs> you were changing lives. I mean, I am, you know, there, there's, there's a role for title insurance, you know, uh, right. and it's an important one, but what you're doing is just so fascinating and so incredible. So let me mm-hmm. end with this. I have one last question for you. What kind of advice would you give somebody who's considering going into this line of work? I, I would I would tell them to honor what their path has taught them and mm. propel themselves from that point because I think that what makes us the strongest in being able to deliver a message to somebody and being able to help somebody is being able to identify with them. And I think that that's probably one of the problems the therapeutic community has had for a really long time, which is... There's a lot of people who go and get degrees and who end up treating people that they have no relation of, they can't relate to them in any way, but they're giving them suggestions or they're, they're having conversations with them that are not landing the way that they probably should because they don't have that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that what gives me the unique advantage in a lot of ways is because I have so much experience and because I've done so much work. There's a lot of things I can talk about that that I have personal experience with, so I can put myself in that person's shoes. Like I have to remember that, uh, you know, on every second I talk to somebody is if I was in this person's shoes, what would I be thinking and how would I want to hear what I need to say to this person? And that's where true empathy comes from, you know. That That's awesome. I mean, right, they say too that the best person that you can help is the person you used to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in any area. And so yes. that is great. I thank you so much for coming on and, you know, thank speaking you for having to me. our listeners out there. Um, 
And, you know, I think this is such an important conversation. And, you know, just so everybody knows, too, I've never met Quincy in person. Somebody else was talking about how fantastic she is. And um, so we were relative strangers until this thing. And now, guess what? We're going to be good friends because I'm going to hunt her down. Anyway, I just love (laughs) you, Quincy. You're you're such a rock (laughs) star. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Before you go, I really want to thank you for joining me today. I really do appreciate you. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate and review Unscripted Pivots on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve and reach more listeners just like yourself. And remember to subscribe to stay updated on future episodes released every Wednesday morning. I have more great content and stories from WTF women coming your way. Until then... Hello, my WTF friends. I've got a quick, empowering question for you. Ever find yourself wondering if you're truly leveraging the full scope of your abilities in your professional life? I'm Danielle Sproles, your ally in navigating the unique challenges many women face, from mastering public speaking to personal branding and navigating the complex terrain of gender inequity in corporate culture. At Unscripted Pivots, we transform your ambitions into reality through personalized coaching, accountability, and innovative problem solving. I'm here to catapult your career and help you make a significant mark in your industry. Ready to ascend to greater heights in your career? Well, visit unscriptedpivots.com and let's start a conversation that celebrates and elevates your ambition.